So this is the word of God. Look with me at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's his command to us. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, allow me to remind us of the, the basic background to the epistle to the, the Hebrews. We don't know for sure uh, who the human writer was that the Holy Spirit inspired. Um, the, the minority view today used to be the majority view, which was the Apostle Paul. And for when I studied for the ministry, I adopted more than the present majority view. And as I preached through the book of Hebrews, I became, I began to lean more toward the old view again. That uh, Paul may very well have been the writer, and there I think there are reasons why his style is different here because of the audience he's writing to in the occasion. He is writing to Jewish uh, Christians or professing Jewish Christians. And uh, there's persecution in Judea uh, in regard to those who are professing Jesus as Messiah and who are gathering to worship God through Jesus Christ, especially the persecution centered, I believe, on the times of gathering together. And some were backing off and we're returning to more of the, the ceremonial practice of Judaism. And the book of Hebrews is saying uh, that ceremonial law was uh, just a, uh, a shadow of the reality, and the reality has now come, and uh, it, no, it no longer has significance other than reminding us that this reality is what we've got to concentrate on. If you try to go back to Judaism, you're going to manifest, if you, if you persist in that, you could be manifesting you never really understood the gospel. You were never a true believer in Jesus as Messiah. And he's warning them not to back away. Even if it means persecution, don't back away. And particularly, and we see this, don't we, in chapter 10, continue to assemble together for public worship. That's where you really take your stand as you gather together, like you're doing this morning. But it might be safe for us in our uh, society with freedom of religion 
We still have that, I think, uh, here. Uh, we are gathered here, and we're not afraid of armed soldiers bursting in and disrupting us. Uh, but we want to remember that in places throughout the world today and throughout church history, it has not always been safe to gather. That's where you've made uh, your clearest profession that you believed in Jesus as the one Savior, the Messiah of the Bible as God's holy word. Because you get in trouble when you gather at certain times and places uh, in the name of Jesus. So we're, that's, that's the background here. And he's saying, now, uh, first, show the diligence of the hope. The, the hope here is similar to our word assurance, only it's not concentrating on our emotional feelings, but on the certainty we have as those having been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, having been effectually called by God's Spirit, uh, who have faith in Jesus Christ, even when we doubt ourselves, once you've really been brought to faith in Christ, you don't doubt Him. You know, you, he, He's all, if, if, uh, in your weakest moment, if, you're, if you've been regenerated and have come to faith in Christ, if someone says, you know, who is Jesus? Is He the Son of God? You're going to say yes, even in your, your uh, times of stumbling and uh, difficulty as a Christian. And so there's this certainty we have, and that's what he's talking about. And of course, it's as we concentrate on the certainty of God's promise in Christ is how we get that more emotional, feel-good feeling in regard to, I have this peace in my heart, and I know I'm right with God by God's grace. If you, if you try to concentrate on how you feel, you will, you will find that... that it's very up and down, and you, it really doesn't work. You concentrate on the objective realities of the gospel, and that's what he does here. He talks about the gospel in the context. Uh, that's the new covenant, and uh, God promised certain things in that covenant, and then on top of that, he swore an oath to it. So he's saying concentrate on what God has done, what God has said, and that's how you have the strong confidence and that's what strengthens you uh, to persevere because true faith is a persevering faith. So what we're looking at this morning is God's absolute guarantee. To those who believe the gospel, God's absolute guarantee. Now we live in a society where there's, you know, there are guarantees for almost everything you buy. Uh, you know, and you... In my lifetime, my adult lifetime, I've seen those guarantees seem to get weaker and weaker and less and less dependable. I remember one time I ordered something in the mail and it came, this is many years ago, and uh, as I read, yeah, it, had, had come, it had been advertised with this you know, money back, no question guarantee. So I got it, it wasn't what I wanted, and I read the small print, and it said you had to actually send back the original envelope that came in, the original packaging. And of course, it would have been so easy to toss that. I think I might actually have put it in the garbage, but thankfully I read the money-back guarantee, went and got it out of the garbage, you know, and sent it back, got my money back. But in my mind, there was, there was a kind of trickery, trickery there. You know, there's, there's something really... Uh, 
at least bordering on the dishonest. They knew that most people, by the time they figured out it wasn't going to work, would have already gotten rid of all you know the packaging. I think you had to actually send back all the packaging altogether, even the plastic you tore off. The, uh, it was just a way of trying to get around their own guarantee. Uh, bankruptcy is one way that, that someone may not deliver on their promise, and I'm not condemning that always. I'm just saying that's, you know, human guarantees, we can't ever get an absolute guarantee. Sometimes the, the seller disappears, you know. You can have your money back if you can find me, but you're not going to find me uh, once, once I've gotten your money. I'd like to recommend for us as Christians, this is not my theme this morning, but chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of Lawful Oaths and Vows, and also the commentary and the larger and shorter catechisms on the Ninth Commandment as to how a Christians to do their very best to be truthful in all our dealings with, with our, each other and with the world as far as these material things, to be truthful, to be honest, and um, be careful how we give our word and then try by God's grace to fulfill our word. But what I, what I want us to think about this morning from this paragraph is God's absolute guarantee, his promise to us in Jesus Christ that Jesus is the more than sufficient mediator that we need to bring us to God the Father and to bring us to glory at the very end. And the assurance it gives us, and in the New Testament, uh, it's not by striving after being good that we get assurance, but assurance based entirely on the promise of God is what enables us to strive after holiness. In other words, that if you're trying to be good and get assurance, we're never good enough. If uh, nothing motivates us to be more steady and faithful in at least our attempts to walk with the Lord and to follow his word, than to do so with the foundation of a confident salvation that I have in Jesus Christ. Assurance motivates us not... Uh, to ungodliness, but to godliness. And this is something the Roman Catholics said. Now, if you tell people they can know they're saved, this is back at the Reformation, they're all going to live these horrible lives. Well, actually, the Catholics, you know, they go and make their confession to the priest, and they lived a pretty horrible life, not all of them, but many of them. But instead, what was found with the, the people who believed the gospel under the preaching of the Reformers was the opposite, that... Once they got away from that notion of us trying to make ourselves good, because that just gets discouraging. After a while, you give up. Uh, instead, you came and you knew you were saved and right with God by grace through faith alone. And then that motivated you to want to glorify God. And you found you had the power by the Holy Spirit to begin to put off the old life and put on the new. So assurance is, is an important is important in the Westminster Confession on the chapter on assurance. It says that um, not every Christian has that, that, that settled, unshakable, emotional assurance. And that, but we can, we, can, we can come to an unshakable confidence and assurance. Um, and that we should try to come to that as we reflect on God's word. Because there are all these good fruits that are born out of this assurance that God's grace has saved me in Christ. 
You know, there's my the joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a motivation now to seek the Lord and live by according to His Word because I'm, I'm not doing so to make myself good enough. I'm doing so out of gratitude to God. And, uh, you know, we, we commend the Gospel more as we seek to live to His glory. Assurance uh, is one of the um, best things as far as witnessing. You know, if you, if you witness and say, I know Jesus saves people. I'm not sure I'm saved, but, you know, I know Jesus. That's not a very powerful witness. When you have the joy of assurance, that, that's what really speaks to the heart of the unbeliever you're witnessing to. So we're supposed to have assurance. Assurance is something that we want to uh, come to and, and be confident, and God gives us this promise here. Uh, and so, you know, with all of the talk about apostasy and those who are falling back in the earlier chapters, he wants them to understand we can trust that as we just keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he is going to enable us to persevere. He's going to enable us. He's going to, he's going to do the complete job. He's going to get us home to heaven in the end. We don't need to live... Uh, with uh, a heart full of doubts and uh, always be fearful. So first of all, uh, verses 13 through 18 of our text, we have God's promise and God's oath in regard to salvation in Jesus Christ. The great high priest, the mediator we have, that's been the subject up till now, Jesus as the great high priest. And so God made a definite promise what promise? It was the promise to Abraham. And he talks about that here in the text that Elder Bill read for us earlier from the New Testament, Galatians 3, 8 through 14. You probably noticed it quotes the same place. And it, it, both of these are quoting from that Old Testament text in the book of Genesis uh, that, you know, Abraham obeyed God, was getting ready to offer. Isaac on the altar, God delivered uh, that in that whole situation, and God said, I, you know, you've proven that you believe me. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. Now, in Hebrew idiom, that was an oath. It, it, it's something like, uh, I myself will bless you. I, I myself, I, I'm standing on this promise that I will multiply you. And that's why he, this is quoted as an oath that God takes uh, and swears this to Abraham. Uh, God promises to Abraham that he would justify the nations by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the New Testament interprets Genesis 22. And this was fulfilled when Jesus accomplished redemption for God's people in his death and resurrection and then has sent forth his ministers and his churches to proclaim that gospel invitation. The promise was that he would fully bless Abraham and would, in a remarkable way, multiply Abraham's seed. And that through Abraham's seed, and he goes down to a singular here, as Paul emphasizes in Galatians, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed spiritually. And Hebrews applies this to Jesus Christ and to the redeemed church of Jesus Christ even as the Apostle Paul does in Galatians chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 4. 
Jesus Christ is Abraham's seed who by his death and resurrection brings divine blessing, eternal blessing on those who hear and believe the gospel. This is a gospel that is saving people out of every nation and tribe and tongue. All the families of the earth are going to feel effect. All the main families of the earth feel some effect from this gospel in a good way because there are people saved out of every major people group uh, throughout the world. By faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of the seed of Abraham. See, we're united to the seed, and so we become part of the spiritual descendants then through Jesus Christ of Abraham. And this, by the way, is what we call covenant theology, what I just expressed here, versus what we sometimes refer to as dispensational theology. In verse 15, what does he say here? We must inherit the promise in the same way that Abraham did by faith, the persevering faith. Abraham, because he fully trusted in God's promise, endured in God's word, and so with patience and perseverance by grace, he obtained the promise. He went to heaven. And of course, that, this is what the author of the Hebrews wants us to do, as we saw there back in verse, verses 11 and 12. We're to imitate Abraham with that persevering faith, a persevering faith that comes from God's grace and is founded on God's sure promise. And then God confirmed this promise to Abraham. Now think about that. Uh, Galatians emphasized this was a covenant God made with us by this covenant he makes with Christ, the seed of Abraham. Now, God's not going to break a covenant. A covenant's a contract in our language. And God's not going to break a contract. We might break one in our sinfulness or our weakness, but God doesn't. And then on top of that, God makes this promise in the covenant. So he makes the covenant, and then he gives an extra promise he's going to keep the covenant. And now we're being told, on top of the promise, he swears an oath. So I hope that, that as you've read through this text, you've, you've had that sense of, of coming to a climax. Or, or um, in, a, in a piece of music, you know, when it builds up to this high point, you know. That, that's what you're supposed to get here, that, okay, it's a covenant. It's a covenant with a special promise. Uh, even the promise, he swears he's, you know, by a legal oath, as if God raises his hand and says, you know, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Now he adds on top of the promise this oath. And he mentions here, this is in verse 16 of our text, that men swear by someone or something greater than themselves to confirm a promise. If you and I are, you know, in a civil suit and we're arguing against one another, uh, we both uh, have sworn to tell the truth, and it's the law of the land that's that we swear by, you know, or we swear on the Bible that God is our witness. You know, either God we're thinking of, our Creator and our Judge, is the one above us when we swear an oath, or uh, or we swear by the law of the land, a legal oath. But our text reminds us that God doesn't have anyone greater than himself. God can't say, you know, I swear by anyone other than himself. Because there's no one higher. He's the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, 
almighty creator of all, and he alone is self-existent. He's never had a beginning, will never have an end. He alone is all-powerful. He alone is truly sovereign. He alone is all-knowing and everywhere present. So how can he take an oath? Well, he has to swear by himself. And that's exactly what he does according to verse 13. Verse 14 is his oath. It's quoting Genesis. Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. That's a very Hebrew kind of idiom. Uh, It's not how we would say things necessarily in modern English. But for them, that was a legal oath. And it's all based on God, who is truth, who is the eternal truth. He promises and swears by himself that he will perform his promise. I think the closest thing we may get to this in our society, and I'm not sure how well it works today, but uh, in my parents' generation, especially in some of your rural communities, a man might say, you know, I give you my word. And that man had a reputation in the community that if he gave you his word, you know, he was going to die before he broke that. You know, death might keep him from fulfilling it, but it would take something like death to do it. I don't, I don't know that we have that kind of integrity as a society. But that may be the closest thing we could get to it to what's happening here. God is saying, you know, uh, only death could keep me from doing this. And I'm, I'm the self-existent God who is immortal and never dies. So that means that's, this is an absolute, absolute guarantee. Nothing can stop this. And, and when he says, uh, when he talks about swearing here, it means a formal oath kind of swearing, like you swear to tell the truth in a court of law. See, a a formal oath of that nature, in a sense, ends the dispute, he says. You know, if I I place my hand in the Bible and I I say, Bill, I'm promising, I'm swearing by the God who's the God over us both and by his word, well, either Bill's going to believe me or not, because I can't swear by anything higher than that. Uh, I, I, I can't. There's nothing higher I can swear by and there are those people who will say, oh, I swear to God, in our non-Christian society, it means nothing. Um, sometimes the ones that say that the most, ones you know, you can't trust, you know, as far as they can, you know, walk out of the room. But God takes this oath. It's, and it, it is the, supposed to be the, that which gives us certainty. You know, I have sworn the blessing of Abraham upon all who trust in Jesus Christ. This is the blessing I was speaking of, the blessing of salvation. God has determined that his people be able to trust his promise of Jesus Christ. Trust his promise of Jesus Christ as the seed of Abraham, bringing eternal blessing to all who put their trust in him. He wanted his people to see how unchangeable that promise was. He was not going to go back on his word, verse 17. And therefore, he added his divine oath to his divine promise, thus a truly divine guarantee. And this, he says in verse 18, has made for two unchangeable realities in which it is impossible for the God of truth to lie. The true realities that are unchangeable and so absolutely guaranteed are God's promise and God's oath to confirm his promise. 
And to whom was the promise in the oath given, verse 17, to the heirs of the promise? Which according to our text, and according to Romans chapter 4 especially, and also Galatians 3, are all those who trust in Jesus Christ, have true, faithful, persevering faith that only the Holy Spirit can give, who through thick and thin continue to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We inherit the promise of eternal blessing that was originally given to Abraham when we follow in our spiritual forefathers' footsteps and continue trusting this gospel. Remember the context, Jewish professing Christians being tempted to back away to protect themselves. Uh, Remember that context. When we trust this gospel, waiting patiently for God's eternal blessing, according to his word, we are Abraham's spiritual seed. Romans 4 is interesting. It actually addresses this. Who Who are the true children or descendants of Abraham? Is it the Jews who are physically descended from him but don't have the same faith he had in God's promise? Or is it anyone who has faith in God's promise, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever their physical descent might be? And of course, you've read Galatians. I'm sure you know that the or Romans. Uh, the answer is, you know, those who are his spiritual children are his real children. And that also helps explain the fulfillment of the promise that his seed would be what? As numerous as the sands on the seashore and the stars in heaven. Because uh, we're not just talking about those who are physically descended. We're talking about all Christians throughout all ages, at all times and all places. They are that seed. And you and I, by his grace, are not among that number. To whom is he speaking? Verse 18. This is another way of describing us. Those who have fled for eternal refuge from our sin and the hell it deserves and the misery that it brings, grabbing hold. It uses the word means to seize, you know, to grab hold of uh, the hope of Jesus Christ that was placed before us in the preaching of the gospel. Christians here are seen as fleeing sin and its consequences Repentance by running to Jesus Christ as their only certain assurance of heaven faith. Think of pioneers who have forts to protect themselves. When I was a little boy, I got the the plastic Fort Apache with little you know soldiers, and uh, you know the idea of those forts and and out west sometimes you can still see remnants of those those forts from the eighteen hundreds. Um, was that it was a place to run to if an enemy arose and it was chasing you you could or was going to invade the territory uh, you could run and hide in that fort and it was a, a place to find refuge uh, the psalms speak of God as our refuge and our fortress don't, doesn't don't they and here uh, Jesus is the one we've run to if we're in Jesus we're safe you know, those, those man-made forts, uh, sometimes, sometimes they helped protect you at that time. Sometimes they didn't. You know, sometimes those walls were breached and now uh, your fort actually becomes your downfall because you, you can't get away because you locked yourself into this one place. But this fort, this fort will never be breached. This fort is the place of absolute 
safety for all who have run to Jesus Christ. Why does he remind us of this promise and oath of God that we might find strong consolation in this refuge of Jesus Christ, in this hope of eternal life given us in the gospel? Not just comfort or consolation, but he uses the word strong, a strong or mighty consolation and comfort that our hearts might truly be at peace. In other words, verse 11, that we might manifest the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope until the end. That like Abraham and many others, by, by verse 12, we might by faith and perseverance inherit the promises of full part in eternal glory. This strong consolation or full assurance is intended to help us persevere. Verse 12, intended to help us wait patiently. Verse 15, intended to help us continue to find our refuge in Jesus Christ only to continue to find our assurance only in his gospel. Verse 18. And so we are to keep setting or placing Verse 18, this gospel hope before our hearers as ministers of the gospel, as the church of Jesus Christ, we're to keep putting before them this gospel hope. Remember, this word hope is more like our word certainty or uh, full assurance. In other words, the word hope isn't used in the New Testament in the sense of, well, it's probably going to rain tomorrow, but I hope it does and I was going to do a picnic. You know, it's pretty iffy there. It's, it's more a wish. But that's not how the word's used. That's not how this author's using it. This hope, this confidence is uh, what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the God of truth has promised the unchangeable God who is all-powerful, all-wise, all-goodness has sworn by himself that he will keep this promise. All who trust in Jesus Christ, persevering in this gospel, will know his eternal blessing. There's no greater guarantee possible for anything than there is for this gospel promise. And, you know, just thinking here, though we know we can't absolutely trust human guarantees, there are certain sellers or people we have dealings with who we do trust more than others. And we will, we will go with their guarantee. Um, when I was a very young man in seminary, I worked at one of the earliest Walmarts. There were only like 20-some Walmarts. It was all in the Midwest at that time. Uh, and one of the things that Sam Walton did to help build up his, you know, he was going to defeat Kmart. And um, one of the things he did was this almost no question asked or very little question asked to return something. And you still can pretty much take something back to Walmart, and if it's a legitimate return, you're just they'll they'll often take it back and reimburse you. They're still, at least last I knew, was was still good with that. Some human beings do a better job on their guarantee than others, but this guarantee is the best. This one absolutely can't go wrong. Well, verses 19 and 20, then let's close this up. Here we're looking at our hope, our confidence, our full assurance in Jesus Christ, our great high priest, based on his promise and his oath. This hope of eternal life, this hope of eternal glory in Jesus Christ, verse 19, is the anchor 
of our soul. This is what we'll come back to in a few weeks when at uh, Lord willing at Ezra's baptism. An anchor keeps the ship steady. An anchor keeps the, the ship, if not totally immovable, at least you know, even in a storm, it, it has this place that it's being held to, connected to. This assurance of Jesus Christ is what keeps us steady and immovable in Him during the storms of life's trials and temptations. Keeps us steady in our faith of, of Jesus Christ. The ship is only as steady as the anchor is able to hold fast. This anchor of our soul, the assurance of God's eternal blessing in Jesus Christ, is certain or sure. It is firm, it is steadfast, and it will never give way. And what is this anchor, which is our assurance in Jesus Christ? What is it anchored to? Because that's, that's a key question with an anchor, isn't it? You, set, you take your anchor down. I'm not one who's familiar with uh, nautical things uh, in any technical way. But the anchor goes down. If all it is is loose sand down there that it embeds in, that's probably not going to help very much. It's got it's to get embedded in something more solid uh, for uh, it not to let go. And what is uh, our assurance anchored to? But is that place of ultimate refuge from which it will never let go, never let us go. He says it's the inner place behind the curtain. This is a clear reference to the Old Testament temple and to the Holy of Holies. That innermost place that was a symbol of God's special presence in the midst of his people. And we know that those innermost curtains, when Jesus died, they were torn in two from top to bottom. I think, what, 30, 30 feet high, 40 feet high? And what was noticed by those in the temple was that it wasn't, you know, one thing, a person couldn't have torn, if you read about the construction of those curtains, you couldn't have torn them apart with your hand anyway. But it wasn't two people, two priests down there, you know, with a sword or a knife trying to cut it from the top to the bottom. Supernatural. That curtain was torn apart. And uh, he, he tells us in Hebrews, he says, the place into God's very presence, the place of salvation, of being fully, completely reconciled to God and being with the living God forever and ever to glorify and enjoy Him forever was guaranteed by His death. And uh, by that, as seen in that curtain being torn apart. This anchor is grounded in God Himself, grounded in heaven, Grounded in that special place of God's fullness, this promise and oath confirms our hope or assurance that we will be forever with God in heaven, accepted by him forever because of our great high priest, Jesus the Christ. Now in verse 20, he switches metaphors for us. That's the wonderful thing about metaphors. You can pile them up on top of one another as long as they, they really are parallel to what you're, what you're proving. So now we switch from this idea of the anchor. Uh, he's, he's talked about it being behind the veil. So now let's go with the metaphor of some, somebody who truly represents us and uh, who uh, is on the inside of things. Someone on the inside who can get us in. In my uh, first pastorate, senior pastorate in Iowa, a young man 
um, there was a couple, elderly couple in the church when they were younger before I knew them, did, did traveling after he retired as a farmer. And um, they had gone to the White House and were shown rooms that none of us on our regular White House tours have, ever t- have seen. The reason is I think it was their nephew or their niece worked at the White House. So, you know, and had some high enough job that they could get them into some of the rooms that the rest of us can't get into. Well, Jesus, you see, uh, is that representative. He's that federal head. Whatever term you want to use, he gets us in. He's there now. Uh, We have our man in heaven, who's also the son of God, right now. He's already there, guaranteeing. You know, it's... He's there, and, and when we come before the Lord at our death or when Christ comes again, we've got our man there, our representative, the God-man, who's going to get us in. And that's what he switches to now. Jesus has blazed the trail for us to heaven itself. You know, there was a time when this was the wilderness here in western Massachusetts. Um, even in Jonathan Edwards' time, though they had wonderful subtle communities and churches he didn't go very far when he went over to preach to the Native Americans did he? It wasn't very far off and it was still somewhat dangerous there and uh, you know someone had to to blaze a trail had to go first uh, um, whenever you have your pioneers well Jesus has gone first he's gone back to heaven having died and risen again having ascended on high not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of all who trust in him. He has entered behind the veil into God's special presence. He has entered heaven itself on our behalf. He is our forerunner. And he has gone ahead, he's gone before. The word was the ancient word for a trailblazer. He has cleared a path for those who are in him coming after him. We follow Jesus to heaven as we trust in him as our only Savior and bow before him as our Lord. Far, as the book of Hebrews has been expounding on, he is our priest. He is our priest to represent us to God, to make acceptable us acceptable to God by his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. He is our priest forever. We will never need another, for his priesthood never fails and never finishes. It is never outdated. Now, actually, the book of Hebrews um, deals with this son. You know, it's called the New Covenant. So God gave it a title that if we're using the title with any exactness, means that it's never outdated. Uh, one of the elders at the church in Merrimack, New Hampshire, as pastor, was an uh, MIT grad. And uh, there was the new building that was no longer the new building. I, I don't know if they ever changed the name, but he said during his time, it was still called the new building. It went back you know, the previous generation, somebody without very much imagination evidently had thought that was going to be the yet, yet, you know, and named it the new building. This is the new covenant, and this one never will be superseded. And that's what we're being told here. And uh, this is why Jesus' priesthood is of the order of Melchizedek, and that's where he's going to go next. Because you see the story of Melchizedek, this, this Melchizedek doesn't, we're not told where he came from, we're not told where he went, and so he just forever abides on the written page of God's word as, as this uh, 
priest of the Most High God. And Jesus is of that order. No end to his priestly ministry. So in summary, the promise of salvation given to Abraham, which God confirmed and absolutely guaranteed with an oath, sworn to himself, is the promise that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This promise gives us such sweet consolation in our assurance of heaven in the midst of our trials and temptations that we remain steadfast in the gospel and by faith wait patiently for uh, the fulfillment of our hope, which is heaven itself. Have you fled to Jesus Christ as the only great high priest who will never cease to be a certain refuge, a fort for all who are trusting in him? Have you followed him by faith so that you continue to trust in him and to, to confess him before men and in doing so you follow him all the way to heaven? Do you have this anchor of the soul this strong consolation, this full assurance. Amen.